Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. So we have been going through a series, uh, going through Luke's Gospel. And um, one of the things that just becomes clear over and over again, as you look at the life of Jesus, it's recorded um, in Luke's Gospel, is that the message, the heart of Jesus' message and his teaching was that of grace. But the thing about Jesus was he didn't just talk about grace. He didn't just teach about grace. He lived a life of grace. And whether it was um, feeding people, whether it was healing people, whether it was uh, guiding them or teaching, he lived a life of grace. And, and that's really at the heart of his message. It's a heart of his life. And that becomes just abundantly clear as we've been going through this. And and a couple of weeks ago, we looked at one of his teachings, one of his stories, um, which are called parables, um, which is really just a story. It's a way in which um, Jesus would take common, well-known events or, or circumstances um, that everyone around him would know, and then he would take that to teach a deep spiritual truth so that, so that people could relate something they were familiar with with something that maybe they were not familiar with. And this morning, we're going to take a look at another one of his, another one of his parables, and it's probably the most well-known, um, if not the very most well-known, at least right up there with a couple of them. Um, because even if you don't know anything about the Bible, you have probably heard the term Good Samaritan. And we're going to look at the story Jesus told this morning, that, that, where that, that, that um, phrase comes from. So if you want to follow along, we're in Luke chapter 10, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 25. On one occasion... An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. Now, when I get to this part in the story... There's just, it just brings something to mind, so I've just, I've got to do something different here. Hello, neighbors. (laughs) So, where was I? Wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, when he fell fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. 
The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The reason for the sweater is exactly what the expert in the law was looking for. He wanted a neighborhood that was like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, where everybody spoke softly and was gentle and kind to each other, where there were no problems, no hurts, no worries, no wounds, nothing complicated, just a comfortable neighborhood. And Jesus said, when we start talking about loving your neighbor, that's not the neighborhood we have in mind. Because that's not the neighborhood that most of us live in. We live in a neighborhood where people are wounded and hurt, beaten up by life. He says, when we're talking about loving your neighbor, you're asking the wrong question. See, the question you're asking is, define neighbor for me. And you're focusing on the wrong word. The emphasis word in that sentence is not neighbor. The emphasis word is love. And so he's asking, define neighbor for me. And Jesus won't define neighbor. What Jesus defines is love. Because it's not about who's your neighbor. It's really about how to become a neighbor. And what he was teaching that man 2,000 years ago, and by extension, his disciples, and by extension, us now 2,000 years later, is you be the neighbor. Don't ask who's the neighbor, just you be the neighbor. And this morning, we're going to kind of unpack this story a little bit and talk about what does that look like for you and for me every day in our lives? Because I will guarantee you there is somebody in your life right now who is wounded, who is hurting who is going through a difficult situation, who is struggling with life, who is maybe a little beaten down by life. And Jesus is saying, you be that neighbor. What does that look like? There's a couple of things, a couple of misunderstandings that man had that Jesus corrected. The first one is this, that a neighbor looks to enlarge their acts of kindness, not narrow them. A neighbor looks to enlarge kindness, not narrow it. It's really important to understand. The guy that asked this question is an expert in the law. He knows all the right answers. He comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, instead of answering his question, poses another question to him. Well, how do you read it? What does the law say? You're the expert in the law. You tell me. How do you read it? And the answer was this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. This man knew the answer. He had known this answer since childhood. This is like one of the very first things you learned in kindergarten. This, this was the whole sum of the Torah. This was the sum of the law. If you can narrow it all down to two sentences, this is, these are the two sentences. This guy knew the answers. He'd known them since childhood, and he'd studied them. He's an expert in law. He had studied them over and over and over and over again. He knew the right answer. He was just asking the wrong question. 
This question is, so who's my neighbor? It's an interesting phrase. He says, but he wanted to justify himself. Anybody here ever done that? (laughs) It's never a good idea to try and justify yourself, but we do it all the time. But he says he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, that was actually a topic of discussion among rabbis. That was actually something that was debated and talked about and tried to understand over and over and over again. That was actually a part of the debate among experts of the law. And there were different schools of thought. Now, definitely, my family fits in the neighbor category, so I've got to love my family. And, and yes, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, so yes, I, I love the tribe of Benjamin. Those are my neighbors, and, 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 and I'm a Jew. I'm part of Israel, so yes, the people of Israel, those are my neighbors. But, but then it gets a little gray after that. Because, well, what about, what about Gentile converts? Now, now, they're not really Jews, but they've converted to our religion. Do they qualify as neighbors? And some schools of, of thought, rabbinical thought, were, um, yes, they do. Because they have now come into, into that knowledge of God. And so, yes, they qualify as neighbors. But there were some rabbis saying, no, 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 not so, not so fast. <laughs> no, no, they really are not neighbors. Yes, yes, they've changed their belief system, but, but they're really, you don't have to treat them like you would treat a real Jew. And so there was a lot of discussion about who qualifies, who fits in the neighbor category. Now, the one thing, the one thing that they would all agree on, no matter which rabbi was teaching, the one thing they would all agree on is who does not belong in that category. And that's a Samaritan. Samaritans are definitely on the out. Okay? Who's in, who's out? Well, we're not too sure about all who's in, but what we do know, who's out? And who's out is the Samaritans. Now, the reason for that is, if you go back in Israel's history, um, there were a lot of things that had happened historically. It all started back when the Assyrian Empire came in and and overran Israel. And what they did was they took a section of people, um, Israelis, Jews, and took them off to Assyria. And in their place, they brought in Assyrians to, to occupy the land. And what happened over a period of time is that they, they kind of intermingled, they intermet, they intermarried, they had kids, and now there's this new group of people. They're not really Jews, but they're not really Assyrians. They're Samaritans because they occupy this area of Samaria. So they're really considered half-breeds. They don't really fit with us, at least. On top of that, there have been a number of times where Israel had been at war, and the Samaritans always ended up on the enemy's side. And so they were hated for that as well. So they were, they, were not, they were not of our people. They were not of our ethnicity. They were not of our heritage. And they were certainly not of our, our religion. In fact, you might remember there was a story of Jesus um, talking with the Samaritan woman. And one of the big debates that she was having with him is, where's the right place to worship? You Jews say here in Jerusalem at the temple, but we have our own temple over here. Which is the right one? They didn't even worship in the same way. They didn't fit any category that a good, self-respecting Jew would have. They're half-breeds. They're enemies. They have the wrong religion. There's everything about them. They're definitely on the outs. If you would think of, the, of, of maybe Israeli-Palestinian tensions today, okay, that was kind of the level of tension that was going on there. Obviously, Samaritans don't belong. But Jesus specifically chooses to make a Samaritan the hero of the story. Now, way back when I was in college, I had a professor. And there's one thing he said, not many things stuck with me, but one thing his professor said, it's really stuck with me. He said, you know, when we read the parables, the one mistake we always make is we identify with the wrong person. 
We read, the, we read the parable of the Good Samaritan, and we always identify ourselves as the Good Samaritan. He says, no, no, no. We are the people that walk by. That's why Jesus told the story. And then you've got to learn to, to, to identify with the right person. Now, the reason I think, one of the reasons Jesus picks a Samaritan is that he, nobody would identify with the Samaritan. There's a little shock value here. He, he's, and, then, and there's something else that's going on. And uh, Ken Bailey actually brings this out in one of his books, that there's... There's, there's the story, there are these stories that are told, the kind of the stories of three. And you find it very often, um, not only in, in the Bible, but in ancient literature. Where there, in fact, actually, even to today, where like, there's one person has, does an action, kind of a random action, but then there's a second person who does the same thing. Okay? And then there's a third person that comes along, and they do something different. And that's kind of the story. That's the point of the story. That's actually the point of the joke. We, we do that today, you know, three men walk into a bar, you know, a priest, a rabbi, and a minister, you know, we, and the punchline is always that third guy. And what Jesus is doing here is he's taking a very common way in which to tell a story, and he's focusing in on this one person who nobody would identify with. They would expect maybe to hear a story about a priest, a Levite, and a great Israelite, but not a, a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. One of the points that Jesus is making in all of this is that to be a neighbor is not to narrow down and say, how much, how little can I do? It's, it's really to expand to say, how much can I do? In fact, the very fact that you're asking the question, who's my neighbor, when it comes to loving my neighbor, points out you don't understand the concept. <laughs> Because if you have to ask that question, you don't understand love. So to be a neighbor is to expand our acts of kindness and compassion, not to narrow them. Second one is this. Neighbors make time to help instead of making excuses. Now, I said earlier, Jesus would often use common everyday events and, and circumstances. And this road was actually a well-known road. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and it was dangerous. It went through a mountain pass. And there were places where it got very, very narrow, and very often robbers would lay in wait. This is a very familiar situation. They know about this. Some of them have traveled down this road. And, and so he's talking this thing, but as he tells the story, and, and you hear, well, as he's telling the story, a priest comes down the road. That's the first person. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now that's a surprise. Because here's a priest whose job it is to care for people, who, who knows the law, who knows all that's required. So you would expect as a priest comes down the road, okay, he's going to help him. But he doesn't. He passes on by. Now, there's been a lot of speculation. Why would a priest pass by? I mean, after all, isn't that his job? He's the paid professional. Well, there's a lot of speculation on what the reason might be. One of them has to do with ritual purity. To be a priest meant you were responsible, you were the go-between between God and man, God and the nation. And part of the priestly duties was you needed to keep yourself ritually clean, kosher, basically. And, and, and to come across and to touch a dead body would make you unclean. And the whole purification process was kind of a pain in the neck. You know, so it's kind of like, you know, if I do... Now, he doesn't know that the man's dead. In fact, actually, the story says he was half dead. Which is actually a category that they had. It's kind of like, any, anybody ever seen The Princess Bride? Okay. There's a, if you haven't, 
spoiler alert. Yeah, there's a character, um, Billy Crystal plays this character. He's, he's um, Magician Max. And, and they bring um, the, the guy to him, and he's, and he's like, he's, they all think he's dead. And, and Magician Max looks at him, and he goes, I've seen Weiss. He, he's not really dead. He's just mostly dead, okay? Well, that's kind of the idea here. This, he's not fully dead, but the priest doesn't know that. So he's kind of, he's looking, and he's trying to decide, is he going to do something or is he not? Now, there was oral tradition that went, if you got close enough that even your shadow were to cross the path of a dead body, you would be unclean. So he, he goes out of his way. Because after all, you know, if I do that, if I stop and help, if he is dead, then I'm unclean. Now I've got to go through all that hassle all over again. I can't do my priestly duties. So, you know, it's, just, it's better to be safe than sorry. I just won't get involved. Eh, okay. Maybe a decent excuse. The next side that comes across is a Levite. So to a Levite. He comes to the place, saw the man, Passed by on the other side. Now, the Levites were kind of the temple assistants. They weren't the paid priests. They didn't get, a, they didn't get paid for what they did, but they were involved also in, in priestly worship. And, um, and so maybe the uncleanness was an, a, 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 a situation for him. It could be not a, none of that. It could simply be that he comes across a narrow place. Somebody's been beat up and robbed and left naked. These guys might still be laying in wait. If I stop, it might be a setup, and maybe I'll get beaten, robbed, and left naked. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's ritual purity and our uncleanness. We don't know. And that's the interesting thing is Jesus doesn't give the reason, and I think he does that purposely. I think he doesn't give the excuses because I think the point is there's never really an excuse. He doesn't tell what their reasoning is. He just says they pass by on the other side. And I think Jesus is making a point by what he leaves out, by saying, you know, there never really is an excuse. Because the truth is, we can always make excuses. And, and if you're like me, I've got a whole bunch of them. <laughs> All too often, I can think of reasons why, yeah, I ought to do something, but. It was interesting, a number of years ago, back in the 70s, um, Princeton University, a couple of professors there, did a study. And what they did was they had a group of students, and, and they were meeting in one building, and they would send them kind of one by one, and they told them, um, you ne we need you to go and give a lecture at another building on campus, over at this other lecture hall. And half of them were told, you're going to go, they were actually divinity students, okay, these were seminarians. And so they said, they would, half of them, they, when they told them and sent them over, they said, we need you to go over to this other building, we need you to give a lecture on employment opportunities for divinity students to incoming freshmen. The other half, when they sent them over, they told them, we want you to go and lead a discussion on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And they just wanted to see, what they, because what they did was, in the pathway between those two buildings, they had a plant. And he was to lean, lay up against the, the side of the building look a little disheveled, look a little beaten up, and when somebody came by, he was supposed to groan or cough or somehow give, to get their attention. And they just wanted to see how often people would actually stop and help. Do you know that less than 60% of those seminarians, those divinity students, the people who know this story, less than 60% actually stopped and did anything for the man? Many of them just stopped and checked and see if it was okay. 
He said, yeah, he's okay. Some of them just went on the way. Some asked and said, oh, I'll get help for you and would go and find some. I think it was down to like 10% actually stopped and did something for the person. And it didn't make any difference. Either they were going to the lecture to give a, 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 the lecture on employment opportunities or whether they were going to give a lecture on, on the parable of the Good Samaritan. It didn't seem to make a difference. The one thing that did seem to make a difference is half of them, when they sent them, they told them that you're late. We need you there right now. You got to get there right away. And the other half, they would say, you got a few minutes, but you need to get on your way. And what they found was the singest, greatest variable the most, the, 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 the one that had the greatest impact of all of them was the people that were in a hurry. It didn't matter what, what the lecture was so much. It didn't even matter whether, you know, it, none of the other things mattered so much as they were just the ones that were in the hurry were the least likely to stop and help. And I thought about that. And I thought, you know, that is probably the number one reason I use if I don't stop and help somebody, if I see something, I think, oh, I ought to do something, oh, but I'm going to be late, or I got to be, I, it's usually, I think hurriedness is probably the single greatest thing that keeps us from helping people. And I think neighbors make the time to help. Instead of making the excuses, they make the time. They stop. They set aside the time. Being a neighbor takes time. Loving people takes time. And if you don't make the time to do it, if I don't make the time to do it, the chances are I won't. Loving your neighbor takes time. And the last one, neighbors act with compassion. They don't just feel compassion Neighbors actually do something. Compassion is more than a feeling. Now, we know about the Samaritan. As he traveled, came where the man was. He saw him, and he took pity on him. That's great. That's great. He saw, at least he did one thing more than the Levite or the priest. But he did more than that. It says, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. You read that there are six distinct actions that he took. Six distinct actions. This, this rule of three on the stories of three, another thing Ken Bailey says is he knows there's a pattern here. There's a pattern in, in this story, and, and it follows this pattern. They come, they do, and then they go away. And that's the pattern in each one of these. The robbers come, they beat and rob the man, and they go away, leaving him half naked, half dead, naked and half dead. The priest comes, sees the man, passes by on the other side. He goes. The Levite comes, sees the man, goes, passes by on the other side. And then you come to the Samaritan. And what's interesting, and I think, again, Jesus is, this is a brilliant story. Here's the pattern. He comes. He takes pity. He does. He goes to the man. He does again. He bandages him up. He does again. Pouring on oil and wine. He does again. Putting him on his own donkey. He does again. Takes him to an inn. He does again. Where he takes care of him there. He does again. For every time that these guys passed on by in this pattern, 
where they come, they do, they move on. He comes and does. 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 It's a huge, huge contrast. And it doesn't even stop there. It says the next day he does even more. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, said, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. See, this parable forces us to ask the question of ourselves. Who is that certain person wounded laying by the side of the road in my life, in your life. See, that's where Jesus is going with this story. He's bringing us to the point where we've got to ask that question ourselves. What are we doing? Who is that person that happens to be in my life? And then what can I do about it? One of the things that happens from time to time around here, we get a call into the church office. And by the way, every church I've been in, every pastor I've ever talked to, same thing happens. Someone will call the church. They know of a need. And they'll call the church and they'll say something along the lines of, can we send somebody from the church to help them? Now, as if we have a whole group of people that just kind of live here and they're just kind of like on call. And they just, they just wait around here, and then when somebody calls, they say, can you send somebody from the church? Then we've got those people, and we just say, okay, now it's your turn to go, you know. Then sometimes I'm tempted to say, well, I'm from the church, and you're from the church. Which one of us is it going to be? Because we, we, we think that there's this group of people, because I've got a life, I'm too busy, I don't have to, but can you send somebody, can somebody from the church go? And what we got to understand, if we're going to change the way people view the church, we got to understand that we got to help people understand that the church is not the building, it's not the office, it's not the pastoral staff, it's not the programs. The church is the people. You are the church. I am the church. And yes, I'm more than happy to go. And all of our pastors, we go, we make visitations, we go and help out when there's need. Yeah, we're happy to do that. But it's not just for us to do. See, the question is, who is that person in your life? I said at the beginning, I really do believe if you think long and hard enough, you can think, everyone in this room can probably think of at least one person in your life that's wounded right now, that's hurting in some way, that maybe has been beaten up by life. And instead of saying somebody ought to do something, just ask yourself, what could I do? Last week, I told you a sentence that I learned from Andy Stanley, and I love it. And it goes like this. Just do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Because one of the excuses we always make is, if I do it for one person, then I got to do it for everybody. And you don't. Just do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. And then when you do for that one, don't just do it as a one-shot deal. Come alongside and be with and walk with through whatever it is they're going through. See, that's what the Samaritan does. He doesn't just kind of do some first aid and say, well, I hope you do okay from here on out. He goes deep with him. Goes the extra mile. And you can't do that for everybody. I know that, but you can do it for one. So this is your change the way people view the church assignment this week. And it's simply this. Make time. Make time this week 
could tangibly help somebody you know. Just make the time. And if you're here this morning, say, I can't think of anybody, then my prayer for you is going to be this morning, God bring somebody like that in your life. Because if you can't think of anybody, I'm going to ask God to make it obvious for you. Because that's the way we're going to change the way people view church. Instead of a group of people who are always talking about stuff, always yelling about stuff, always pounding on people about stuff, what if we actually did stuff, good stuff? Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.